And let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us as your people from all races and colors, from all nations, from all over the world. And thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sin. We pray now that you will help us in your spirit to be united in him and to stay uh, in this way. And now be with me, Lord, as I speak from your word, uh, helping me to be clear and to speak faithfully to your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our friends today, as Martin mentioned just now, the church celebrates the epiphany of our Lord Jesus Christ. And some of us might be, be asking this question, what is the epiphany all about? Well, friends, epiphany falls every year on the 6th of January, and it is generally taken to mean the self-revealing of our God in Jesus Christ, His Son. And some traditions, perhaps due to the closeness of the day to Christmas, choose to focus on the visit of the three Magi, or Magi, from the East at his birth, the bearing gifts that uh, reveal the baby Jesus' kingship in his gold and his eternal priesthood in, frank in, frankincense, in frankincense, and his death for the redemption of our sin in the myrrh, uh, the gifts that they have, they have brought with them. Other traditions? draw on the baptism of Christ, where God's voice from heaven uh, declared that Jesus was his son, while the Holy Spirit descended on him and commissioned him for his, for his mission of salvation. Today I've chosen to speak from Ephesians 3, verses 1 to 12, on pages 1164 and 1165 of the Church Bible. Usually, uh, there is also the usual guide in the middle of the bulletin under the heading of our discussion, revealing the eternal purpose. Before we dive into the passage, uh, we take a look at uh, the historical context of the church at Ephesus, which, like many other first-century churches in the area that we now call Asia Minor, consisted of a large number of Jews who were converted from Judaism, and which included as well uh, Gentiles who converted from their own pagan religions, like in uh, Acts 19, where we see them converting, uh, uh, where we see them worshiping the goddess Artemis. Now, though they might belong to the same church, Jews and Gentiles do not mix very well together. That did not pose a big problem until more and more non-Jews, the Gentile group, uh, were evangelized and became Christians. Now we must remember, remember that the church started from its Jewish roots. So for the Gentile, it was like entering into an exclusive club, so to speak, in today's context. And so unless you have a sticker on the windscreen of your car, you cannot even get in to park in the club's car park. And if you want to order some food, unless you hold a membership card, you will not be able to get anything to eat or to drink. 
In a similar manner, Gentile converts were expected to adopt uh, the main Jewish boundary markers, so to speak, of the law, uh, the food prohibitions, and observing the Sabbath, uh, to be even considered to be true Christians. Now, in the earlier chapter, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul has said that this should not be the case. Because as Paul told them, whether they were Jew or Gentile, all of humanity was dead in its sin. And it is only through the grace of God that the Christian faithful was saved. And you can find this in chapter 2, verse 8. And it reminds us, friends, that as a community in Jesus Christ, God has made us alive for no other reason than His great mercy and love for us. In fact, none of us deserves it. And it is not because we have earned it by our works of service to Him. It is a grace that is given freely by God. Now, Paul is making a point that there should therefore not be any division or any separation between a Gentile Christian or one that is coming from the Jewish background. Reminding us also as Marys in our own time and in our own place that Christ Jesus by His own blood and His own flesh has made both Gentile and Jew uh, believers members of the household of God. In other words, God's people. No matter our origins, we are God's people as long as we hold fast to the faith in Christ Jesus. In our passage in Ephesians 3, Paul will further explain one aspect, one key aspect of epiphany. It is the revealing of God's purpose of uniting a person for himself in his son, Jesus Christ. Come with me as Paul begins on page, uh, on page 1164 in 3 verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, Paul wrote this probably around the year AD 61-62, and at this time, Paul was a Roman uh, prisoner in Rome, waiting for Caesar to judge his case. And because Paul held Roman citizenship, he was allowed to evangelize to the large uh, community of Jews in Rome, even though he was under house arrest. Now, the reaction in Rome was similar to the mixed reaction from the Jews throughout the book of Acts, as he spreads the gospel message. While some believe others are frequently and stubbornly opposed to him. They were opposed to the teaching of a gospel of grace freely given by God, free from the unachievable demands of the law, safe through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And it was because of this stubborn, this stubborn refusal to listen to him that he had to appeal as a Roman citizen to be placed at the pleasure of Caesar, that is, for Caesar to judge him. But listen to how he speaks of his condition. Instead of describing himself as a prisoner of Rome, he says he was a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And it was for the sake of the Gentiles as he reaches beyond the Jews and reach out to the Gentiles. And in verse 2, he speaks of himself as the steward of God's grace. But how does Paul know this? Well, we read this in verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. 
Friends, the word mystery means something that is left unexplained. I remember that as a kid, I loved the mysteries of Enid Blyton, like her books on the five fine outers or the famous five, and also those on the secret seven. Uh, for those of you, you, you may be, uh, some of you may be uh, familiar with that. And even as I was growing up, I loved to read the mystery books by Agatha Christie's on characters like Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple. Both writers were amazing and left the solution or the re revelation of their secret until the very last moment, uh, leaving us to hang on to, the, uh, to, the, to our chairs, uh, so to speak, until uh, the writers reveal the secret. Now, in the case of Paul, verse 3 emphasizes that he did not come to this knowledge, this revelation by himself, but that it was revealed to him by God. Now, we are not told where or what it is that Paul has written briefly about. But we do know from Acts 9 how he was commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself on the road to Damascus to carry Jesus' name before the Gentiles and kings. And how much Paul would have to suffer while he was doing this. Now, in the case of Enid Blyton or uh, Agatha Christie's books, the mystery was who has done it. And who has done it? And you find these kids uh, trying their best to find out who has done it. But so far, what do we know about this mystery that Paul mentioned? Well, let's read verse 4. Verse 4 said, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. The mystery, Paul says, is about Christ. Something more about Jesus that Paul has come to realize. Not just that Paul was on a mission on a mission for him. But Paul does not elaborate on what this was. He was living to a bit bad later, as we shall see. He left his readers hanging on as he, as he goes on to verse 5 to say that, in fact, this mystery of Christ had been hidden from previous generations of humanity. So what is Paul talking about? What is this insight into the secret that has been kept hidden from previous generations, which is also associated with Jesus? Oh, friends, you know, from the Old Testament Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit, we know that these Scriptures point towards salvation through faith alone. We read this in Habakkuk, for example, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. And we read about the inclusion of Gentiles in God's plan to bless them in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Or in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, or Psalm 117, among many others. But you see, friends, once the law has been given, those passages have been understood by the predominantly Jewish church as to mean that sojourners and outsiders would be saved only if they embrace the main boundary markers of Judaism, as I mentioned just now. In other words, they became Christians of Jewish origin, so to speak. This was contra to the gospel message of Jesus that Paul was commissioned to preach. Now, Paul, while not elaborating here, says that on the other hand, to the New Testament apostles and, and prophets, it is no mystery at all because the Holy Spirit has revealed to them what the, what the mystery was, that it was associated with Jesus. 
And so far, we still have not come to know what the mystery is. We are left in suspense by Paul. And let's read verse 6 and find out more. In verse 6, Paul says this, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The answer comes in three parts. In through the message of the gospel, number one, Gentiles are now fellow heirs, fellow, in, fellow inheritors, so to speak, counted as God's children, similar to God's ancient people Israel, and more importantly, co-inheritors with God's Son, Jesus Christ, of His eternal kingdom. Number two, through the gospel, they are now members of the same body. The new humanity of God's people are now, in Jesus, one single body. And Paul uses here a word that is only found here in the Bible, fellow members, to indicate a brand new creation in Jesus. Therefore, both Jew and Gentile are not only not separated, but inseparable because they are all now one single body. And thirdly, in the gospel, they are partakers or recipients of the promise of salvation in Christ. This, this promise can be seen in two parts. Firstly, Gentiles are now core recipients of God's covenant. Not the old covenant, but the new covenant that has been instituted through Jesus' death on the cross for us. And secondly, both Gentile and Jewish believers are core recipients of the promised Holy Spirit by Jesus. And to summarize, as one Christian writer puts it, the Jewish Messiah is also the Gentile Messiah. That is to say, Jesus has come to fulfill the Old Testament promises of God to send a Christ to save the Jew, who is at the very same time the very same Redeemer to save the Gentile believer. Gentile and Jewish believers are now united as one through the death, the resurrection, and glorification of Jesus Christ. And in verse 7, we read this, that uh, in verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. It was by God's power, not His own, that Paul was made one of those who were privileged was privileged to reach out to the, to the Gentiles with the gospel message. Now, friends, it's interesting to note that the Greek word used here that, was, uh, that is being translated into, in the English as minister has the humble meaning of one who serves like a servant at the table. They serve. Ministers serve. Unlike the modern understanding that ministers are to be served hand and foot. In verse 8, Paul continues to say that he is the most unworthy of the owner. He is the very least of the saints. And yet, he was graciously chosen to preach to the Gentiles. But what is this message that he was supposed to preach? Well, he says, it is about the unsearchable riches of Christ, the uncountable and marvelous blessings of Christ that has been brought to the faithful. It is like describing a diamond mine with no bottom. And the more we dig and the deeper we go, the more diamonds we get. Now, Christ has brought this blessing that sinful humanity does not deserve. 
grace that's freely given, forgiveness of sin, restoration with the Father, eternal life with God. It is impossible to explain this fully, but we can see just a part of the meaning. We know by faith that the rest will be revealed as God has promised. And perhaps one day, when we reach the other side of paradise, we shall have the full knowledge of all that we cannot see just yet. And we continue in verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone that what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. To reveal for everyone, to bring uh, to light what is covered in darkness, the age-old mystery. To summarize, Paul's part in the mystery is its revelation that Jew and Gentile believers are now united as one body in Jesus through his death, his resurrection, and glorification. As we reach the last part of our passage in verses 10 to 12, Paul speaks about the eternal purpose of God. In verse 10, we read, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Our friends, the word manifold has the meaning of being many-faceted like a perfect diamond in the hands of an expert or master cutter who has cut it so that the diamond reflects light from in the most magnif magnificent manner. And it is God's manifold wisdom, His incredibly complex and diverse transcendence, for want of a better word. God's revealing this mystery in its most colourful and brilliant form. It is the central role of the church to be as if that perfect diamond to show God's manifold wisdom in all the wonderful colours of the rainbow. Now friends, we as part of the church are to be that united front to be witness for Jesus. But to whom? Well, listen to this. The surprising thing here is that Paul does not speak about the church witnessing to earthly rulers and authorities, but to the ones in heaven. And it holds a particular message for those bad angels in heaven, the bad rulers and authorities in heaven. For he has the for the United Church, comprising both Jewish and Gentile faithful, is telling this uh, bad portion of the heavenly rulers and authorities that their end is near, is certain, is sure. It has been brought about by Christ's death and resurrection. And in verse 11, we read that the eternal purpose of God is a witnessing church, a gathering of, uh, a gathering of faithful people in Christ Jesus, of men and women from all nations and races, from all social status and origins, irrespective of wealth and education. Verse 11 says this was according to the eternal purpose that God had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we come to our last verse, verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Our friends, that particular verse holds great comfort and gives us the confidence that we need to go forth in our life here on earth. We are reminded that even the powerful evil angels and authorities cannot stop our access to Christ Jesus. Unless we allow them, 
to do so and give way to the temptations that they put, they put in front of us to entice us. We can stand sure and confident in the Lord. So, as we come to the close of our passage, what can we bring home with us today regarding Epiphany? Well, in summary, the Epiphany of Christ calls us to be His body, witnessing and telling the heavenly rulers and authorities the manifold with, um, wisdom of God. We are that church, baptized in one spirit into the one body, and we are to pursue all that makes for peace and builds up the common life. Now, having said that, three aspects of Christian church unity come immediately to mind. First of all, unity of belonging. Our friends, everyone here has a place in the community of Christ's people. No one is more equal than the other, not like the pig in Josh Orwell's book, Animal Farm. We don't grade people because they are the pastors or lay readers or elders of the church or by their educational level, nor their monthly income, or how frequently they shower, or how smartly they are dressed. In the eyes of God, everyone is made in His image, and all are equal. Secondly, unity of purpose. Each one of us working as a part of the whole body. The eye cannot say that it doesn't need the ear, and the ear cannot say it doesn't need the eye. Each one's contribution is essential to the whole purpose of the church. So whether in terms of money or in terms of talent, whether it is very much or very little, uh, each is important to the going out of the gospel. Each one is just as important as the least significant. And a good way to help us to do this right is to think of ourselves as being the least significant. And that should go a long way towards helping us to do this, to achieve unity of purpose in the right way. And thirdly, unity of witness. All that we, must, all that we do must be for the furtherance of God's kingdom. In our own behaviour, and I particularly, personally, need to be reminded of this myself, are being watched not just by earthly eyes, but by heavenly rulers and authorities just waiting for a chance to pounce on us like a crouching tiger. Above all, as a community, we are to help each other as we journey together to be more like Christ. So what does Epiphany of Christ tell us? Epiphany of Christ tells us that we should stand united as a church in purpose, in belonging, and in witnessing to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the church that is gathered in his name. And we pray that as we gather every time, every Sunday and every other day, your spirit will remind us to stay united even as we witness your wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.